Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. The world's most valuable resource is no longer oil, but data. So can you be certain that no one in your organization has uploaded an API key, PII, health data, or proprietary source code to the cloud? Are your log files scrubbed of sensitive information? Listen later in the show to find out how OpenRaven can discover, classify, and alert you when your cloud data is at risk. Episode 103, recorded on February 3rd, 2021. Bezos retires over Slack outage. Good evening, Jonathan. Ryan Holmes didn't make it to the show tonight due to technical difficulties. And Peter. Hey, Peter. Hey. Uh, Don't mind Peter's washing night, apparently, at the (laughs) Rusako's house. So he's got laundry, which apparently above his podcasting studio. So he's going to mute unless he's talking. So I spare you all the sound of apparently dangling seashells that are shaking with the spin cycle of the washer. It's quite the epic thing. It's pretty good. You don't know what you're missing. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds very cozy. I agree. It just uh, it is what it is. Up first, I don't know if you remember this because it's already February, but beginning of January started with a terrible, terrible disaster of a almost full day Slack outage on January 4th. A Slack apocalypse, as we called it on Monday the 4th. And it's official RCA finally published by the Slack team on the Slack engineering blog. And they basically walk you through the timeline of their events. They had some issues as well because their monitoring dashboards went down as well, which made it very difficult for them to apparently figure out why they were down and what their issues were, resulting in teams having to manually query their backend metrics databases. They walk through several other things that happened in their system and talk really an interesting challenge they have, which is that, you know, when they talk about their application, there's a mini peak that happens every day at seven, you know, at the top of the hour and the half hour, basically. And so as they were scaling up Monday morning, Basically, they hit that first peak and they weren't able to auto scale due to some network issues they were experiencing. And that then overloaded their web server, which then crashed their database servers, which crashed their entire system in a pretty horrific manner. But that's not really the root cause. I mean, that's a bummer. They're used to typically auto scaling up and down and they talk about how they actually have designed into their system to basically increase their capacity for those many peaks, etc. So apparently the biggest issue was apparently Amazon's fault. They actually called out Amazon and said Amazon had an issue for them. A couple things. First of all, they had the issue. They tried to auto scale. They hit all the things we always hit in the middle of outages when we're in panic mode. We hit all those quota limits. <laughs> so that's a bummer. Couldn't scale up as many services they wanted to. They had some issues with the provisioning service that needs to talk via Slack and AWS's APIs, which of course, then they hit quota limits on their APIs. They had all kinds of fun times, but really the root cause was that they use transit gateways. And so apparently they used to be a single account like many companies have tried to do and failed and then learned about multi-account, took the multi-account of religion, implemented transit gateways, and our hubs to link their VPCs between different systems. But so the problem on the January 4th outage was actually was that their transit gateway got overloaded. The transit gateway was managed by AWS and should have scaled up transparently to Slack. However, Slack has a very interesting traffic pattern, which Amazon had not predicted in their auto-scaling logic. So basically for the two weeks of Christmas, Slack's usage is pretty dead. (laughs) They don't do a lot of slacking uh, when you're off on Christmas break and New Year's. So then, of course, the January 4th being the first day, everyone's Slack clients have to hit the system. They had to pull down all the messages they missed over the holidays and a big cache hit as the client cache is very cold at that point. So basically, that would require their network traffic to increase dramatically from what it was the prior two weeks. (laughs) And then basically, that caused them to go from the quietest days to the busiest day and not be able to auto-scale their systems properly due to the transit gateway failing them. They did talk about in the article that they are working with Amazon. Amazon's going to be looking at their auto-scaling logic, and now they have you know, a lesson learned to make sure that they 
pre-scale their TGW before the next Christmas break. So hopefully next January 4th or January 5th, whatever the first Monday of the month is, uh, we won't have a repeat of this issue. I think we predicted that, didn't we? When we talked about it last time, I think we commented that it was the first busy day back after a holiday. And it was we did mention scale- that part, that it was kind of coincidental, thing. but yeah. now I know it applies to the RCA. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I'm glad we were partly right. But, I mean, I guess you can kind of blame Amazon for it. It's not the only scaling issue that we have. We have low balances scale up slowly, and there is no way, other than through a support ticket, to scale those things up in advance, even if you know the traffic's going to increase. But apparently here's a good use case for uh, machine learning and change calendars that understand vacations and things like that. So <laughs> I was wondering if it was machine learning related because machine learning is, you know, pattern driven typically. And so it does that in advance based on patterns. And if it didn't have this in its model, maybe it was machine learning that actually caused this or prevented the scaling. Maybe we should give the machines the holiday off too then. So they appreciate <laughs> <laughs> not give them the day off, make them train over the holidays. You know? I mean, if they're using ML, they definitely need to make sure they extend their window of time they're looking to inform their model because I'm pretty sure if they looked at last January 3rd, there was a big spike that day too because if there's a normal pattern that Slack is used to seeing, then you know it's very likely going to be a problem that they see every year. The machine learning maybe didn't have enough data set. We might argue, right? If it is machine learning. But I, I imagine it's a very simple, rudimentary, like it probably looks a week back at best effort and that kind of stuff and then basically scales in some incremental fashion up and scales in some incremental fashion down. And probably on most days, it doesn't scale down far enough because the traffic isn't drop enough. And so, you know, the steps aren't as bad when it has to rescale back up. But in this case, they were just really out of whack at what their load was. Yeah. And it's easy to blame Transit Gateway for the initial cause. But if you look at all the things that aggravated the problem, like health checks that go unhealthy when dependent systems are down, retries not being controlled when there were outages, cascading failures, all these things are like cloud ops and even just general reliability architecture 101 that I think Slack needs to rethink and review and upgrade their architectures as well as their response to outages. Yeah. I think maybe there's a a need for a second class of health check, really. You know, are you healthy and can you do your job because of other things in the chain? Like, you know, application server could be healthy in itself, but if database is unreachable, then it can't do its job. But that's no reason to replace the app server. I think that's Exactly. You create your own outage. Yeah. You create your own outage by writing bad health checks that you think are making sense because they seem more comprehensive. But in fact, they're not doing their job, which is, is this layer healthy? Yes or no? I actually... I'm a big fan of the practice of just having sort of like a static page that can respond 200 for a health check. And then that's sort of independently controlled. Then, you know, say looking at downstream, because you still want to have that sort of data, right? Like, oh, this is not working. This is working. This is not working. It's just that people conflate the two use cases. It's pretty tough when you have so many different services in play, though. I mean, especially if you think about wanting to fail over to another region if EC2 goes down or Dynamo goes down or something else goes down. You need to have granularity and awareness so you can fail over individual components if that's what your model is, I guess. But at the same time, I don't know. Yeah, it gets very complex very quickly the more dependencies there are. Yeah, it does. They did point out in this article that while Amazon didn't scale the way they wanted to, that there was a lot of failures in their architecture as well. And they're not blaming Amazon. You know, they acknowledge they have a very unique traffic pattern versus other customers. Although I can see other products, SaaS business apps that you know maybe have a similar pattern as well. So I definitely suspect that AWS will provide some capability. I'm sure they'll do an IAM next year to make sure their TAMs and everyone's aware for the first day back from the US. But that's what if you're paying for enterprise support, take advantage of those programs. 
And then you know, one of the other things that I mentioned in the beginning of the article was that their monitoring dashboards went down too. And so the reason why their monitoring dashboards went down is they separated the web front end for the dashboard from the database back end for the dashboards across the VPC. <laughs> so, of course, they had to hit the transit gateway, which is, of course, saturated at this point and can't handle that. So that's why they were blind as well. So a lot of good lessons here. I highly recommend reading the blog post if you're interested in these type of things. But again, hug ops, you know, it's a tough world and you learn these lessons the hard way, sometimes with scars. And, you know, I'm sure Slack will learn from this, Amazon will learn from this, and we'll get a better, more resilient service out of both products in the future. I don't know if I missed it, but did they talk about why they separated the back end from the front end? Was it? They didn't say why they did that. It was just probably an architectural thing or some scaling thing they wanted to do where they wanted to have different potential subnets or scaling parameters for the back end versus the front end. I don't really know their monitoring system very well, so I assume there's a logical reason for it, but maybe there's not. <laughs> maybe just a bad choice. But they just said they yeah. were going to combine them together so they don't have to cross network zones in the future. I mean, it's, just an, it's an old model, so I was wondering if they just kind of followed that, you know, segregate the data layer through ACLs and firewalls and wonder if that was the cause. It's very possible, you know, from... You think about database zone versus app zone versus web zone. Those are all three different areas and you go through VPCs and, you know, there's a security reason why you want that for East West protection and things like that. But in this particular case, you know, your monitoring system doesn't actually need the same level of security as your production app does and the same uptime and the same things that these things probably do. So that's definitely something to keep in mind when you're thinking about your tooling is that it doesn't always require the same levels of operational uptime or security or different workflows, or maybe it needs more. You know, especially for uptime for a monitoring system, I probably want to have that system be up even more than my main system is so I can make sure I know when my main system is down. Maybe this is going to be a good case for them to break down just like AWS do their services into smaller pods, which which each have their own failure domains. I mean, not the entire world takes off two weeks around the end of December and beginning of January, but presumably the Slack outage affected everybody because it's a single application stack, which manages the whole thing. Perhaps Amazon will, will guide them to deploy many copies of those things. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of different things they could do. It also seems like this was Transit Gateway's regional, correct? It's not global. So, I mean, you're talking about a Transit Gateway in a single region potentially having this problem. If you're multi-region, does that problem exist in the same way? I don't know. We have cross-region Transit Gateway now. Yeah, we do. But you know, what is this one? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, back in episode 97, uh, when we were recapping reInvent, we talked about the fact that partners could now sell their services or offer their services to you via the AWS marketplace. And we said at the time to Peter, you know, Foghorn should do this. And so, Peter, this article is for you. FogOps team for Linux now available in AWS marketplace. Yes. Foghorn's Cloud SRE as a service offering. FogOps is now available for direct purchase via the Amazon Marketplace. Turn your FogOps subscription and get an instant SRE capability delivered via ChatOps and pay for it on your AWS bill. So congratulations, Peter. That's awesome. Yeah, it's super exciting that our customers could now buy our service right through Amazon Marketplace. So hopefully people find us there and it'll be fun. Does that count towards our EDP commit? Probably talk to your account rep, but I think at least some of it does. So it is another good chance to burn down that EDP commit. That's great. I always love a good way to burn out my EDP commit. <laughs> Although I seem to do it pretty well with just Amazon services. So I don't, but you know, if I ever need it, I have that lever that I can buy a bunch of stuff through EDP commits and marketplace and burn that down. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. 
If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, it is a uh, earning season again. Ooh, play the horn, Jonathan. <laughs> First up is Microsoft. Microsoft revenue was $43.1 billion with operating income of $17.9 billion and net income of $15.5 billion. That is for their entire business. So we only care about the cloud business, which was up 26% driven by Asia revenue growth of 50%. Intelligent cloud revenue was a total of $14.6 billion, or if my rough math is correct, almost a third of the entire Microsoft revenue, all from Asia. Incredible. Yeah, it's nuts. Fifty percent. I mean, I know they lump in some stuff in there, so it's a little bit, you know. Well, and obviously, C five is in there, mm-hmm. and there's a couple other things. So yeah, it's a little bit. But you know, Amazon has workspaces and Workmail, right? So I mean, it's yeah. apples to apples, I suppose. Except for no one uses those two products. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty great quarter for them, which is great, and got to see like they need to invest in a big way. Satya Nadella had to say, what we have witnessed over the past year is a dawn of a second wave of digital transformation sweeping every company and every industry. Building their own digital capability is the new currency driving every organization's resilience and growth. Microsoft is powering this shift with the world's largest and most comprehensive cloud platform. I mean, comprehensive and complete, I don't know. I mean, sure. Okay. Thanks, Satya. Last time we talked about Alphabet, which is GCP, they were going to officially break out their revenue numbers for the Google Cloud, which they have now done in their fiscal FY22 or 2020 numbers, as well as in their quarterly earnings statement. So Google did $56 billion in total revenue with a $3.8 billion coming from GCP specifically. The total 2020 revenue was $168 billion for the year. Google apparently took a $1.2 billion loss on Google Cloud in Q4 2020 and a $5.6 billion loss for the entire fiscal year on $13.06 billion in revenue for the whole year of Google Cloud. So if they're investing very heavily in capital and building out data centers and those kinds of things, that investment is not necessarily a bad thing. The question will be over time now is, do we see that loss start to reduce as they're growing their business and their top line? Or does that spend continue to grow while they're growing revenue top line? So that'll be really interesting to see. We'll keep a close eye on that here at the Cloud Pod over the next 12 months. As then I'll be reporting this every quarter, which is really nice to see. It's cool. I thought that loss was because they're paying a bunch of really expensive Oracle execs now. Nah. <laughs> I mean, that's always a possibility. And sales compensation, because they have been selling the crap out of GCP. <laughs> yep. The thing that makes me nervous is that you know, if you're going to take that big a loss and you don't very quickly start realizing and recouping some of that, and it's Google, is Google Cloud going to get just nixed one day or slowly reduced, like killed by Google? Well, I mean, it's one of those things is to get to a point where they just stop investing in it as heavily and then they don't innovate as quickly enough and they don't do those things where Amazon Cloud is generating most of Amazon's revenue or profits basically is coming from the AWS business line. You know, it's interesting that Google is spending so much money and not yet having much of a return. I mean, they have it's time to catch up. up. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, Amazon rounded out the week with revenue for the fourth quarter. It was $125.6 billion compared to $87.4 billion for the year prior. Profits was $6.9 billion, up from $3.9 billion in 2019. Net sales for the company increased 38% to $386.1 billion compared to $280.5 billion in 2019. AWS, again, the one we care about, was $12.742 billion in revenue in Q4 and $45.3 billion for the total 2020 year. This is up from $9.9 billion last Q4 and $35 billion for all 2019. So they grew revenue for... 
AWS by $10 billion in the last year. That's crazy. That's a lot of net gateways. <laughs> it's a lot of net yeah, gateways. I was, was going to say, it's mostly my spend, I think. But <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, the amazing thing with that is that's not just selling software. It's not just selling bits. You got to build the infrastructure to serve up and realize that revenue. You can't just sign the deals. Yeah, uh, this is why I really think they're going to continue to be the number one player for a long time. All that investment in R&D they've done, you know, continuing to deliver new features and they're still growing revenue at $10 billion a year. That's crazy considering how much they're investing in this. I mentioned above about Google and profits coming from GCP versus profits coming from AWS. So AWS had $3.5 billion returned to the bottom line from their Amazon business after expenses, up from $2.596 billion from Q4 the prior year. And total, it provided $13.5 billion, up from $9.2 billion in the prior year to the bottom line of Amazon.com. So that is impressive growth, and it helps Amazon be a good retailer, too. So that's why some of the retailers don't like having their SaaS services provided by AWS in some way. I mean, if you just do the math, that's like 29% net income for the year. 29%. I remember when Microsoft was doing like 24%, right when they started hitting all the antitrust they got on the radar, and some congressman was calling it un-American. 29% net income is not the net income of a commodity service. That is the net income of a cartel or a monopoly or someone with no competition. They could drop their prices across the board by 25% and still be making the same net income as the entire insurance industry. It's just nuts. <laughs> wow. It is pretty nuts. Well, you know, normally that's it for earnings as we cover the big three, but Amazon dropped a bomb in their earnings announcement. Well, not bomb. I mean, it's a big announcement, though. So uh, Jeff Bezos is announcing that he is stepping down from Amazon as CEO in Q3 of 2021 and transitioning to executive chair of the board. Uh, And they've announced the successor to him will be Andy Jassy, which we talked about here on the show in the past as well. Jeff plans to focus his efforts on new products and early initiatives. And he highlights the amazing innovation that they've delivered at Amazon over his 27-year career, including 1.3 million talented employees and all the inventions, including customer reviews, one-click purchasing, personalized recommendations, prime shipping, just walkout shopping, the Climate Pledge, Alexa, Marketplace, cloud computing, career choice, and more. And he points out that if you get it right after a few years, people just yawn at your innovations. And a yawn is the greatest compliment to the inventor, all in all. And he reminds you all that it is still day one at Amazon and continue to work on the Bezos Earth Fund, Blue Origin, and the Washington Post and his other passions. And so the big question now is who's going to take over AWS now that Andy has the top spot? So do you think this is all triggered by Elon Musk becoming the richest man in the world and now he's going to go compete with him on Blue Origin? I mean, maybe. I mean, I don't know if you saw the new Model X steering wheel, but I feel like Ellen's just trying to take his money away at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wonder like what motivates. It's crazy to me, the amount of money and just the things being discussed. Like, you know, I made the joke, you know, he's taking time off to go count his money. And, you know, there was some article talking about how long that would actually take. (laughs) And it was, you know, some unfathomable number. I think Jonathan did the math on how much he had to spend per day to spend all of his money if he lived some period of time longer. I was yeah, pretty- if he lived another 30 years, he could spend $1,900 a second for the remainder of his life. That's the funny thing about being the richest guy in the world, though, or the second richest guy in the world. I mean, it's not liquid. It's not like he has a bank balance of that many dollars. If he were to actually start selling enormous amounts of Amazon stock, the stock price would fall tremendously. And it's not like he actually has access to that money all in one go. So, I mean, still the richest guy in the world, but. (laughs) 
I mean, that's true. That's what people always forget. You know, it's tied up in investments. It's tied up in these things. And it may not be actually realized as income in the end. But. Yeah. If I ever have $180 billion in assets, that's my story anyway. Well, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. It's not liquid. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, it's not liquid. <laughs> no one can get access to it. Not even myself. Yeah. <laughs> without, without massive tax penalties. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. All I can think of is, guy, what was his name? Colcord, the Cheers, Christy Alley's boyfriend. Who had a famous quote saying, "In the time it takes me to save fifteen thousand dollars, I make fifteen thousand dollars." <laughs> Oops, I did it again. <laughs> nice. Clearly, he doesn't run an Amazon Web Services infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the big speculation is still is, of course, you know, who replaces Andy as head of AWS Web Services. Some of the rumors I've seen all over Twitter is Matt Garman is probably a likely successor. He used to run EC2 back in the day. Uh, he's now head of sales, uh, apparently, and so they think he might be a good choice. I've heard that Andy wants to really get a diversity candidate in there, so maybe Teresa makes sense. She's been a long-term Amazon person as well. You know, there's lots of good choices inside Amazon, I think. Probably people we don't really know yet who've just been working tirelessly for years and decades on infrastructure and Amazon and are part of the blood and, and culture of AWS that might be chosen for this. Someone mentioned, you know, why not Werner? And I think, you know, Werner is older than Bezos and Andy Jassy. So I don't know if he's really interested in that, nor do I know if he has the business acumen. I mean, he's technically brilliant, but doing, does he have the right business or is he even interested in doing that business stuff? You know, it's something to be the CTO of AWS and be able to go visit companies and do your TV show and do all the things that you're doing that are super fun as you kind of head for retirement, maybe in the next five years. He's 62 or 63 at this point. So We'll definitely see. I'll be keeping a close eye on who gets named the new CEO. They definitely did not announce it with this announcement, which I thought was interesting. I assume that's because they didn't want to shadow Andy Jassy or this announcement. They want to wait for that for a future point in time. So we'll hear about that, I'm sure, later in the year. All right. Well, moving on to new features, which we love here at the Pod. Multiple private marketplace catalogs are now available to you. If you have an organization that loves marketplace because you're using that to burn down your EDP credits you overcommitted to, you can <laughs> you can make fog ops available to it apparently yeah, through this yeah. process. Available to all of your distributed accounts with the private marketplace catalogs. Instead of having just one private marketplace, which is how it used to work, you can now set up different private marketplaces for different types of accounts. So if you have these services are allowed in production, but you don't want them in dev or test, you can have two different marketplaces so you're not burning production dollars in your dev environment for like Oracle licenses, for example, or whatever other software tool you're using. So this is a nice way to basically be able to provide uh, different choices or different organizations or different business units, different capabilities through the marketplace, which is really nice for those people who need that. You guys aren't wild on this one. No, no, I'm not. (laughs) This isn't a problem that any of us have. No. Is what I'm hearing here. Yeah. I just wonder how that scales for people who buy services in the marketplace like that. I mean, one day you've got 50 employees and then you launch on the marketplace and all of a sudden 3,000 people click on to say that they want your services. I mean, is there a commitment when you click the button to say you want services? Are you signing up for like X many hours guaranteed or how do you deliver that? How do you scale that exactly, Peter? I'm sure that's a problem you want to have, I assume. is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not worried about that at all. <laughs> We're, good good at yeah. 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 We're good at scaling. Yeah, We're good at scaling. Very good. Is a question: Do you rate? Are you able to rate limit how many deals come into FogOps on Marketplace? Like, can you say that's not I, a problem yet? That's okay. not a problem, right? The aggregate number is zero <laughs> so far. Until <laughs> this, pod, until this podcast, just when the podcast today. is launching next week, you might get some people from the podcast. You never know. Yeah, no, I mean the way it basically works with professional services is that you don't really just click to buy. 
you click and then we have the opportunity to give custom pricing, et cetera. So there's a little step in there, but we've got a cool model where because we over-provision customers and we have fractional teams, we can have a much larger group of resources available at an aggregate lower utilization rate without having people just sitting on the bench doing nothing. So we could turn on, like if I had to, even though we're a small team, if I had to, I could turn on five customers tomorrow. So that's not a problem. Granted, if we got 100 new customers tomorrow, then that might be a problem. But so far, that's the least of my problems. But it's a people business. So yeah, I mean, this doesn't scale like bits and EC2 instances for sure. Well, we hope that uh, you get some great deals from that. So, Thank you. I got some free Amazon credits. What can I spend my $500 on? <laughs> <laughs> you can get a half an hour of Foghorn Yeah, yeah. bring <laughs> it. That'd be awesome. <laughs> we'll do like one of those game days. I was thinking I could like call you up and have you drive me home from the bar one night or something. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Dude, if, yeah. I'll tell you what. If you buy Fog, if you buy Fog House with your credits tomorrow, I will send private pricing for a rain check to drive you home from a bar. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if you are a big fan of AWS Private Link, uh, it is now available to you for S3. AWS Private Link provides private connectivity between S3 and on-premise resources using private IPs from your virtual network. S3 was one of the first services to provide the VPC endpoint, but customers need the ability to access S3 from on-premises privately over secure connections provided by AWS Direct Connect or VPNs. Apparently, customers have solved this solution with something about proxy server. With private IP address inside their VPC and using this as a gateway to S3, which sounds like a terrible idea. Like, woof. While that works for performance, this can be very greatly constrained as well as a single point of failure if you're not architected properly and increases your complexity quite a bit. So if you've done this interesting anti-pattern, you can now retire that infrastructure and extend the functionality of your gateway endpoints by enabling you to access S3 using your private IP all directly over your VPN or Direct Connect for a low per gigabit charge and a low hourly charge for your interface VPC endpoints. We had to do this in like 2016 or so where a customer had a big pipe into a big direct connect, like two 10 gig pipes, but out to the public S3 endpoint, they had like NAT and they had this tiny little egress bandwidth. And so we did this exact thing, built auto scaling proxy servers in their VPC to get stuff into S3. Well, the VPC endpoints solved not having to traverse the internet, and so it saved money on the AWS side for internet bandwidth, which got us also the performance increase, you know, read throughput, write throughput to S3. But those gateway devices were never accessible outside the VPC. They were not routable, and so you had to build proxy services. So it's nice that they have an end-to-end solution for all these things. What's not nice is the per-hour pricing, whether you use it or not. I mean, I get that there's some bits have to be moved around, and there's obviously work being done, but... I'm much happier paying per gigabyte transfer than I am a standing charge to have a service available. Anytime they do an ENI attachment to your VPC, though, they charge you that low hourly charge is what I've noticed. You know, it's always part of the tax. Like, oh, you want to not go out your NAT gateway and pay NAT fees. We're going to get you on this other way with this ENI attachment. And then plus it's typically a per gigabyte fee. So I agree with you. Why can't you just wrap that VPC endpoint charge into your gigabyte charge in some way? It kind of makes me feel good, though as this sounds kind of dumb, but when they set these things up, it makes me feel like they are actually charging me for the resources that they have to pay for. And then it feels like the pricing model could be optimized to the point where that margin could be trimmed. Obviously, it's not since we listened to their earnings today, but it could be in the future trimmed down to that bare bones commodity pricing where they actually have to charge you for that for all the edge cases or they potentially may lose money. 
I mean, does it look better to say it's a penny an hour plus X per gigabyte, or does it look, you know, because those are both two very small numbers, or do you just give customers one number which is slightly larger? I mean, I think they go for the optics of two smaller numbers rather than one large number, but, you know, just kind of reminds me of like buying something. Well, people like argue QVC. about these. It's like, you know, just pay separate shipping and handling. Yeah. And the reality is when you do yeah. um, one cents per gigabyte, that charge is going to the interface VPC endpoints. When you scale up, right, all of a sudden now that cost gets out of whack with the reality of the value you're getting. But there's ways to solve that by once you've kind of covered the cost of the VPC endpoint, you know, you basically have a pricing tier <laughs> where you go to the next pricing tier and get a discount. But, you know, it, there are definitely advantages to those kinds of things, etc. Well, you know, if you're burning money through private link or S3 or low per gigabit charges and you would like to burn money, the best service to do that, of course, is Amazon Macy. <laughs> And I'm going to mention here that Amazon Macy has provided you a whole bunch of new capabilities this week to allow you to basically configure, scope, and run sensitive data discovery from Macy across any AWS account in your organization. You know, so you can now cover that S3 bucket in the other account and then see in this account and see all the data. So your security team doesn't have to go to every account and run Macy, which is nice. This gives you better volume discounts, which is why you're partially doing this. You can also now scope your scans to object prefix, which I was upset when I first learned this was not there because that's one of the key ways that we sort logs into buckets as object prefixes. Uh, so now you can actually do that. So if you don't want to scan the entire bucket, you can now scan just a portion of the bucket with the object prefix, as well as they're giving you better cost estimation for visibility. So you'll know that you're going about to burn hundreds of thousands of dollars before you do it, which is super great, as well as all the sensitive data location metadata for which account it came from, etc. will now be found in the Macy findings. And this is all really great. And I really appreciate all these things if you're trying to use Macy. But I will tell you, I'm going to plug our sponsor right now, Open Raven, who makes a solution for this exact problem that is better than Macy. And it's better than Macy because your private data is not just in S3. S3 is the first place, but you also have EBS, you have RDS, you have all of the other data storage capabilities that are in the AWS cloud, and Open Raven can cover all of that for you and with a much cheaper price than AWS Macy can. I'm not saying Macy's bad, I'm just saying. Our current sponsor, Open Raven, I'm super impressed with. They have a great product, and I highly recommend checking it out. Hello, I'm Mark, co-founder and chief product officer at Open Raven. Understanding the type of data you have in the cloud is step one for the security of any organization. Does this cloud storage object contain personal information, healthcare information, financial information, or even developer secrets? Once Open Raven discovers the location of your data, we classify it and report on the sensitive data you have. PowerPoints to Parquet files, CSVs to source code. OpenRaven finds the risks to your sensitive data, whatever your cloud scale. Visit openraven.com slash the cloud pod to learn more and start a free trial to discover, classify, monitor, and protect the data you have in the cloud. But again, if you're using Macy, these are great features, and I'm sure you're super happy that now you know that you're about to burn $300,000 on your scan before you do it versus after when your cloud health or whatever other budget monitoring system has all of a sudden tells your CBO, you spent a lot of money and you didn't know why. Yeah, it's much better than Macy Classic because you did not have any of the options to turn it on or off selectively. You could not specify at all and it was really expensive. Yeah. I mean, it's like the ultimate in decision-making information now. Like if the risk is that we might get sued for X many million dollars if if there's a data breach and it's going to cost us this much to scan, well, is it worth scanning or not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do we take the risk? Do we not take the risk? You know, it always comes down to financials in the end. Yeah, no, I mean, if you think about, you know, access controls and stuff, you know, we've used tags for ages for classifying sensitive data, not sensitive data, but it always takes the human to manually do that. And that's error prone as humans are. So, you know, having the ability to automate is definitely something that 
can really empower, you know, little excess things, but you don't really want to pay a million dollars just so that, you know, a user can look in this bucket, but not that other bucket. I mean, and tags are great if everyone's following the process, but the whole point of DLP is looking for accidental data loss or malicious data breaches where somebody's used a bucket to put something in that didn't belong there in the first right. place. Yep. I don't see very many black hats, you know, tacking <laughs> your outgoing yeah, yeah. data sets. So, yeah. Hey guys, see you on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a service yeah. you can buy on HackerOne if you can just like, you Please know. Please use the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you want man. this data back? Yeah. I'll tell you where I put it. Here's my phone number. <laughs> Just check your yeah. tags. My Bitcoin address is right here for you. Yeah. Just deposit <laughs> this amount of money. I'll tell you where the encryption key is. Malicious so. exfiltration tag. Please, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's it for uh, AWS this week. I think they didn't want to have a lot of stuff going out into the market with the Bezos announcement, as that was a big deal. So it seems like they took a break, which was nice for a change. But GCP filled in the gap. <laughs> By far, they announced a ton of stuff this week, which we'll get into right now. So the first one is HPC VM images are now available to you for your compute instances. GCP is announcing the public preview of a CentOS 7-based VM image optimized for HPC workloads with a focus on tightly coupled MPI workloads. Of course, in 2020, they wrote a blog post where they gave you several features and best practices for tuning to help achieve optimal MPI performance on GCP. And with these improvements, they showed ping pong latency falling into single digits of microseconds and small MPI messages delivered in 10 microseconds or less. Instead of following best practices yourself, which, you know, who wants to read? You can Oof. now leverage the built-in HPC VM image at no additional cost by the Google Cloud Marketplace. There are several advantages to this image, including the easily create your HPC-ready VMs out of the box, the networking optimizations for tightly coupled workloads, compute optimizations for HPC workloads, and consistent and reproducible multi-node performance. If you want to learn more about this, I do recommend checking out the blog post as well as the original blog post when they announced their optimizations for this. If you're in the HPC world, which I'm not. I had to look up what all these terms were because when I was reading the article, I had no idea. And so I'm like, oh, this is just... I know HPC is high performance compute. What about MPI? Yeah, it's just, you know, it's your data jobs, right? Yeah, I mean, is latency of 10 microseconds that critical when you're talking about jobs that could take minutes to hours or days to run? It's one of those at scale problems, right? So 10 milliseconds, but 10 milliseconds over 11 billion requests. Yeah, I think that the, like Hadoop does, you know, set up your jobs to do really good job of getting the compute done on the node that has the data on it. But a lot of HPC setups really rely on the network because they need to communicate between nodes to get those jobs done. Looking forward to the next announcement when they replace CentOS 7 with something that isn't being end of life. <laughs> that was my first thought too. I was yeah. like, yeah, some product manager started this project before they knew CentOS 7 was going to be completely screwed over. Or do you think it was uh, the customers? You're like, they'll never use CentOS 8. Yeah, really. Uh, Nobody, uh, it's a fad. <laughs> well, what they created <laughs> operating it's a fad. CentOS is a little strange, so I don't think anyone is going to use CentOS 8. So. <laughs> I'm not trying to use it. I mean, so they've basically, they announced CentOS 8's already basically end of life as well, and they're going to. I think it's free CentOS or there's some other... Yeah, some weird port yeah. has a funny name. Yeah, so I mean, basically, there's not going to be support for CentOS 8. So, you know, adoption of it, there hasn't been enough time. So there's people aren't really using it all that much. And there's no reason to start now. I think yeah. they it's should a- run Amazon Linux too. In the Google Cloud. Perfect. Why not? Mm-hmm. I run Why it at home. Not? So, you know, I downloaded yeah. the image. I created my little boot ISO file with all the networking information, the metadata information to fake being an EC2 instance. It runs great. Oh, that's awesome. I haven't done that. I should do that. Yeah. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. To check that out too. Actually, I did do the Amazon Linux container one time. That was pretty nice. Yeah. I have a couple of those running. I have a couple of those. 
Well, if you are in the Cloud SQL world using Google's Cloud SQL, you might want additional analytics. And so you might be using an APM tool or some other SQL profiling capability. And those can be kind of expensive, especially when dealing with SQL Server uh, in particular. So now available from Google directly is a Cloud SQL Insight capability, a simple open tool that helps developers quickly understand and resolve database performance issues on Cloud SQL. All customers will have this available at no additional cost for seven days worth of data, which is much better than the Amazon offering, yeah. which I think is not free in any way. Features of the SQL Insights include integration across development lifecycle with open standards like OpenTelemetry and cloud monitoring and trace APIs. Developers can use tags to associate queries with specific business functions, such as payments, inventory, business analytics, and shipping. And one more feature we will talk about here in a minute, as well as self-service query diagnostics with pre-built dashboards and visual query plans. Holy crap, that's awesome. The tags, like... I hadn't heard of that concept at all, like for tagging a query for performance, but you can see how amazing that could be for categorizing and visualization and reporting on performance later. There are use cases where pretty simple payment, inventory, et cetera, but I was thinking like in a multi-tenant database, you know how amazing that would be? Like I'm going to yeah. tag this based dynamically based on the tenant ID. Mm-hmm. Like you can then basically bill back your database properly to the tenants that are using up the most capacity, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Or just for scaling concerns, like when do you pull that client into a dedicated database? When do you do, you know, that migration to reduce noisy neighbor? It's fantastic. I just picture if we go with Justin's suggestion there of the developers being convinced to create more complex queries so that their customers get billed more as a revenue strategy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't say I want to build them more. I just want to know what their costs are so that way I can know how to allocate the costs properly in the bottom line. That's all. I love that Peter's trying to pass off his evil genius and like, this is a Justin idea. It's a Justin idea. (laughs) It's not my idea. (laughs) Well, so the part I skipped over because we're about to talk about it in length here is this awesome feature. So I don't know how many of you have ever been on an outage where you have potentially had a query that's blocking in the database and you go look at the query and the query is the size of war and peace <laughs> with all kinds of crazy inner joins, outer joins, complex, you know, cross table schema mappings, all kinds of weird, crazy stuff. And you say, who built this code? Who wrote the SQL code? It makes no sense. And the answer is no one wrote that code because what it is, is an ORM or object relational mapping library. And these help developers write queries using an object oriented paradigm, which integrates naturally with app code and their preferred programming language. So things like Ruby have these, Node, Java, et cetera. So you can basically write an abstract of what you want and then it'll convert that into SQL code, not well optimized SQL code typically, and then destroy your database over time as it continues to scale. So this feature is called SQL Commenter. And to tackle the SQL ORM code problem, Google is introducing SQL Commenter, an open source library that addresses the gap between the ORM libraries and understanding database performance. So SQL Commenter gives app devs visibility into which application code is generating the slow query and maps the application traces to the DB query plans. Augments the SQL statements before execution with comments containing information about the code that caused its execution in general. So now instead of trying to figure out, well, that really long code, I don't know where it could have got generated from because there's a hundred places it could have come from. The code in the database will actually tell you exactly where it came from and which code dynamically generated that so you can go figure out why it's broken. SQL Commenter is available for Python, Java, Node.js, and Ruby languages and supports Django, SQL Alchemy, Hibernate, Knex, SQLize, and the Rails CRORM, with more probably coming in the future. SQL Commenter also allows open census and open telemetry trace context information to be propagated to the database, enabling correlation between application traces and the database query plan itself. It also integrates into Cloud SQL Insights, which I just talked about. So not only do you get this capability, but you also get a visual layer on top of this with Cloud SQL Insights to help you detect and diagnose query performance problems for Cloud SQL databases. I think this is super cool. 
This is made cool. for me. I love yeah. it. I just picture the support people at Google so furious that everybody's saying their database is slow. And then they go through all the troubleshooting and they find out that they've got some ridiculous query created by an ORM tool. And they're like, we just need a product so that our customers stop blaming our database. It's always a nightmare when you're in these outages and you know, you're looking at that terribly optimized SQL query and you're like talking to the dev like, dev, where did this come from? And they're like, well, I don't know because I don't know which function called it this time and depending on what parameters they pass, I don't know. All that can be now put into the tag in the ORM label and that can now basically be passed directly into the SQL execution, which is great. So very few features that I get really excited about. That one I get, I'm super excited about. I just, it's funny because I never really thought about, oh my God, what have I created with my code in the past? <laughs> like, Oh no. Okay. I never, it's I mean, just like, so it's, much easier, yeah. right? It's so much easier to write apps. Yeah. Granted, I'm happy paying a little bit more for a database server, knowing that I'm probably, I have a bunch of unoptimized queries, knowing that I could create business logic so quickly. Well, the problem with ORMs typically is it's just like any other library you're putting into your software. People don't always update them quickly enough. And so, you know, there's all these performance optimizations coming into your database platform. The ORM vendors are potentially taking advantage of that, but you're not updating your library. It causes all kinds of problems. I was at a company that had written an ORM, their own custom ORM back before there was a ton of them like Hibernate and all these to write SQL code and Oracle code based off of their language in the application. And the problem was it was written for SQL 2000 and it was, we were running SQL 2012 at that point. Then like the answer is like, well, we need to update the ORM. Like, well, no one knows the ORM because it was written back when Christ was a choir boy. And so, you know, it's like, well, then we just need to swap it out with something else. Like, oh, that's a lot of work. <laughs> so, you know, there's problems when you have these custom ORMs in the past that didn't get updated. So it's always nice to go with a more publicly supported one. But again, it's a library. It has to be updated. And again, this code may work fine on this version of SQL or MySQL or Aurora. And then the next version, it runs like garbage because they change the way they do optimization. They change the optimizer. They change something that now is breaking this code that worked fine before. So, again, this has been a bane of my existence for many times in my career which is why I like this so much. Yeah, it lets software engineers use databases and data stores without needing to be experts in that technology. They don't need to be SQL engineers. But at the same time, as soon as you start building abstractions, then that's just a different thing you have to maintain. That's why I like Worms, because you get me to that first join and my brain just locks up. I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Dude, but you're the guy who doesn't like you know CDK because of the abstraction away from the infrastructure. It's it's all fine, <laughs> so, it, it, except for when it's <laughs> things I don't know and don't want to do. <laughs> I got a picture of you now, Ryan. Like, Ryan like, shakes fist at SQL statement. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking. I wonder if there's a like, why couldn't you create a database system that has that as its object oriented? native language. Well, you, the only way you know it's successful is when someone writes a SQL interface for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then you get exactly. <laughs> that is perfect. Yeah, even Elasticsearch wrote a SQL interface. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a SQL interface for anything. It comes from any size of scale. It's hilarious. I mean, even, like, even Hadoop has Hive to query metadata like a SQL database. I'm like, really? <laughs> so many things. Well, the next announcement from Google is the new VM Manager, which is a suite of infrastructure management tools to help you maintain a large fleet of servers. The VM Manager's automated features include the patch management to keep your services up to date against vulnerabilities, a configuration management capability allowing you to deploy, query, and maintain consistent configurations of your VMs, inventory management via OS Query, and by taking advantage of these automated tools, you can keep your systems up to date, reduce the risk of downtime, and improve productivity of internal users across several hundreds or thousands of servers in your fleet. 
I'm just shocked that it's taken this long. I mean, AWS Systems Manager has this, and it's not that hasn't been around all that long. I'm shocked that this is being introduced at Google right now. Like these are things I would think are table stakes, but I guess they're not. <laughs> Pretty crazy. <laughs> I'm surprised that more cloud providers haven't done more with configuration management. I mean, like Amazon integrates with Puppet and Chef if you're using OpsWorks. And there's, I think they also do Run Salt and Puppet and Chef in SSM Run, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah. why have none of them just come up with their own? Like, why are you supporting all these other capabilities? Just build your own. Well, That's I fine. mean, Systems Manager and Policy Docs, you can kind of argue, is its own. And then people didn't use it, probably. And so that's, you know, the Puppet and Chef capabilities. Because they couldn't find it, because it was in the Systems Manager console (laughs) under AWS. Simple Systems Manager, Simple Configuration Systems Configurator. It probably has some dumb name. That's why no one could find it. I think the ideal, though, is that you wouldn't have to modify things once they were built. You know, you build a new image with all the patches and the configuration you want, and then just deploy it. And then you wouldn't have to make runtime changes. And I think the tooling that Amazon and GCP have both been building for the past year or so sort of go back to the fact that people aren't adopting that the way they expected you know it's yeah. uh, containerization is fantastic for applications that support it and not for a lot of legacy apps so you need to provide all this stuff and i think they were late to the game bringing us these tools because they thought it was going to play out differently i still think they're right in the long term but i do agree in the short term with companies still doing major lift and shift operations to a cloud they need these tools they need this capability and I think then Amazon can kind of come in and say, okay, now let's modernize your app. Let's get you into cloud native. Let's really think these things. But until you get there, and those transformations can take years in some cases, you need these tools to manage the pets. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know what else? Slightly unrelated to the announcement, but I forget that Amazon don't use the term VM when they're talking about mm-hmm. the branding of their compute instances. They use you know, it's EC2. And to see... Uh, an announcement from GCP specifically talking about VM manager. I'm thinking, VMs? That's what we had in the data center. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Interesting branding. I had to read the article sometimes from Google very closely for that reason, because sometimes they will be talking about VMs, but they'll say VMware VM, or they'll say hypervisor VM or something like that, because it is they do use the same nomenclature. It's like, honestly, I built the chart for presentations where I've been educating people on cloud and what the difference between cloud and on-premise, and I have this chart that says VMs. EC2 instances, and they're the same thing, right? And they are at the end of the day. It's just a branding thing that EC2 has gone that way right. versus you know Google has VMs and Azure has I think instances as well. They just call them Azure instances. Well, in Google's terribly named products, EventArc, <laughs> which was announced in preview back in October, is now generally available. This is a new eventing function that lets developers route events to cloud-run services. EventArc is capable of allowing you to receive events from 60-plus Google Cloud services, Receive events from custom sources via PubSub. Adhere to cloud event standards for all your events, regardless of source, to ensure a consistent developer experience, and enjoy an on-demand scalability and no minimum fees. Several of the G Cloud commands that you have used have now been broken because they now remove the dash dash beta tag, as well as they change their matching criteria flag and some of their other optional flags for destinations. You can now bring your own PubSub topic before you had to have event art created, which was annoying if you were trying to actually integrate it into your app in any way. And additional regions are now supported with the general availability announcement. So if you are looking to do event arc, which again, I say is a terrible name, it is available to you now, generally available in multiple regions. Again, wowed. I mean, I'm mostly interested in event-driven, you know, architecture since it is a terrible name. Can't think of anything clever to say, but I'm glad that these are existing. You know, the service searches are picking up speed. Everyone's sort of going this model just because the days of polling and cron and can get kind of old. It was great. 
Well, if you're an organization using GCP, it's very possible you may be running an application that needs to leverage Google's APIs. And when I say Google APIs, I'm talking about Map and Gmail Suite and all of the different services that Google's offered for years across all of their products. So they're all API driven. And allowing developers to build feature-rich and scalable services on Google Cloud Infrastructure requires these APIs many times. But accessing those APIs can be tough if your organization is leveraging the VPC service controls to isolate resources and mitigate data exfiltration risks. So Google, is, to fix this, is announcing the Google Cloud DNS response policy. This new feature allows a network administrator to modify the behavior of the DNS resolver, add according to organizational policies, making it easier to set up private connectivity to Google's APIs from within a VPC service control perimeter. This is all based on the subset of the Internet Draft for Response Policy Zones, or RPZ for short, which allows you to modify how the resolver behaves according to a set of rules. Now, first of all, the fact that you're going to modify your DNS resolver and how it behaves in different scenarios mm. terrifies me. But then the fact that it's actually an internet draft that's going to be across all DNS in the future someday, that scares me, me even more. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought the Google Doc APIs were hard to use before. <laughs> Isn't the RPZ stuff pretty much what the Route 53 resolver rules were based around, where you can override queries to certain domains and things like that? Yeah, it's, it's based on the same thing. Just, yeah. you know, when they put it in this context, you're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. You're talking about changing the way the internet works with DNS. It's been a stable, established service for years, and you're proud of it, Google, versus Amazon, who's like, we're going to hide that complexity with a bunch of buzzwords and the resolver that no one knows about. Well, I mean, yeah. Amazon's done magic with DNS for a long time with service endpoints and host names and VPCs. So when it's all magic, I just assume it's being handled at a different layer. When it's sort of exposed at this layer, like, oh, wait a second, this isn't proprietary magic that's happening at the network layer to magically get my packets where they go. This is a whole different thing. People have been misunderstanding DNS for 38 years. Damn it, you can't change it now. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, everyone's trying to win lightning round points. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, we're moving to Asia here. Azure Resource Graph unlocks enhanced discovery for ServiceNow. So if you're using the ServiceNow ITOM discovery capabilities, they are now fully integrated into the Microsoft Azure Resource Graph, enabling faster and scalable discovery of your organization's Azure state with operational workflow. ITOM discovery and service mapping for Azure provides an organization with an up-to-date configuration management database, or CMDB, view of their IT infrastructure and services running on Azure. Benefits for an Azure slash Snow customer or ServiceNow customer is support for discovery of a large Azure environment containing hundreds or tens of thousands of resources, four times faster discovery of customers' Azure estate based on Snow benchmarks, enhanced visibility into cost savings of Azure hybrid benefit licensing, and fast automated creation of service maps using Azure tag data. So if you ever try to use ITOM, you'll know that you typically have to deploy servers in your VPCs and then do this terrible manual scan process. And it's always out of date because it takes forever to do all this thing. So I do think this is a benefit. This is what I actually was yelling at them about to do for Amazon forever ago. <laughs> and then they finally integrated it into AWS config to solve this exact problem. So they're now catching up on the Azure side. Mm. Now, and this is another, you know, Azure partnership we talked about. Was it the Kafka service cloud something? Confluent cloud. Confluent cloud. Thank you. You know, and so this is another tight integration that I think customers are really really get a lot of benefit out of this because it isn't easy, as you mentioned. Having that backend integration and have it just sort of work is great. I mean, it's a challenge with AWS. You need to do a discovery, whether it's for security or CMDB or any kind of tracking of changes. You're really rate limited on describe API calls. And the more tools you have, the closer you get to re you know, running out of room in the number of calls you can make. And I've seen production outages because a security tool has used up the entire allotment of describe calls or something. So, I mean, I think providing native functionality to tools that need to assess large amounts of resources like this, that's really cool. Everyone should do it. 
Well, at first there was code, and then there was no code. And now Microsoft is giving us low-code app development, or LCAD for short. And they've written an entire blog post covering this as part of their blog post of the month, or it's covering a webinar of the month for low-code app development. This month's riveting webinar is Developing Application Lifecycle Management, ALM Processes, with GitHub Actions and Power Apps. You know, it just rolls right off the tongue, and I just thought we'd put it here to make fun of it, because low-code app development, I don't even know what that means. Oh, I know. That's Microsoft Access 2.0. <laughs> ooh, ooh, there you go. Perfect. I was going to say Visual Basic, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're looking for low-code, Azure is now launching a brand new monthly blog post where they're going to be covering a webinar about low-code that you can check out. I don't know who you are. If you're out there, please run our Slack channel and tell us all about what you're doing with low code because now I'm just curious. Only if you have a very so, thick skin, though. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, only slightly mock you. <laughs> I mean, no, we won't. You're a listener. You're coming to our thing. We're yeah. nice to because we, we love all of our listeners. Microsoft Azure Quantum is apparently hitting preview, and the register says, not so much quantum computing as it's quantum-inspired computing. As the Azure Quantum is, according to Microsoft, the world's first full-stack public cloud ecosystem for quantum solutions, one qubit and Microsoft run on their cloud on prosaic hardware along the lines of CPUs, GPUs, and FPGAs. Quantum principles are applied by algorithms running on classical hardware, mm, not on actual quantum cheaters. computing. But I mean, technically, Bracket does the same thing. So I'm a little bit miffed that they said the world's first full-stack public cloud ecosystem for quantum, because that's not true either. <laughs> and that is it for Azure. Jonathan, I think you said you had to head out because uh, you said the lightning round was garbage this week. So we'll say goodbye to you early. I do. And so I had, <laughs> had some amazing jokes this week. But before you go, maybe you'd want to stick around for the Oracle section. <laughs> oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. I'll stick oh wait, there's none. Yep, okay. Yep. There's no, no Oracle section. The Oracle section. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave my responses here and you can insert them as necessary. My first is just what I wanted to hear from my cloud provider. He's dead, Jim. <laughs> okay, so insert that to whichever lightning round thing you think is most appropriate, and I'll be glad for the point at the end of the, the round, and I'll see you guys next week. See you next week, Jonathan. Good night. Thanks. See you. He just won right, lightning Peter, you want to have a lightning round for the rest yeah. of us here while Jonathan runs away? <laughs> no, I'll just give it to Jonathan. <laughs> call it a night. <laughs> <laughs> he just won. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me leave. <laughs> okay, here we go. Amazon CloudWatch Synthetics. Supports Amazon API Gateway in API Blueprint. I mean, synthetics, blueprints, like this is how Terminator happens, folks. Mm-hmm. Just, Ooh. Dun, dun. You got to give a quote. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Amazon transcribe. Oh, I didn't wait. Wait, I should wait. I should give uh, Ryan a fair shot. Oh, Ryan, I, a shot. Nothing. Yeah. I think it's fair. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Amazon transcribe medical now provides automatic protected health information phi identification i mean this is amazon transcribe medical i'm gonna guess that 90 percent of what's being transcribed by this is phi so is this really a hard feature just everything you just gotta have a dictionary of all those crazy medication names and then you just you know apply it. tylenol nope that's not phi <laughs> unmark herpes Brian Lucas. Herpes. herpes yes phi yes. herpes yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry Amazon Guard Duty introduces machine learning domain reputation model to expand threat detection and improve accuracy. Again, I go back to my comment about the Terminator. You're giving them better threat detection and improved accuracy with synthetics and blueprints. I mean, this is Terminator all over it. I did come back. <laughs> See, See how that works? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't take machine learning to really figure out my reputation. So oh, I'm not sure if this is really needed. <laughs> Amazon Elastic File System triples. 
Not doubles, triples read through put. Three times zero, still zero. Ah! <laughs> nice. Uh, AWS Control Tower now provides bulk account update. Which I'd care if I ever remember what Control Tower does because <laughs> it doesn't work with existing OUs. <laughs> ah. What about AWS Control Tower extending governance to existing OUs in your AWS organizations? Thank goodness. <laughs> Man, now I can go actually figure out what those bulk account updates can yeah. do. <laughs> Asking ye shall receive. I know. Yes. I, it's almost like I put the show notes together to set that up. Yeah, maybe. Weird. <laughs> Amazon SES now lets you assign a configuration set to an email identity. I mean, finally, I don't have to continue to put in every SES configuration the safe senders. I can just give you a configuration set. Uh, <laughs> could have done this many, many times before. Yeah. Thank you. Discover, review, and remediate unintended access to secrets manager secrets using IAM Access Analyzer. I mean, if you didn't know that you have unintended consequences already of Secrets Manager, then, you know, this isn't really going to help you anyways. So I, I, I read through this. I don't get it. Like Secrets Manager is meant to be an auto rotation, you know, and I get that there's access. This is just the same I am access analyzer saying this has been accessed by this person. What does this do? But now it's unintended. Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> it, like what you're talking about is an intended action. Almost everything now I do in the cloud is actually unintended since it's I mean, all going wrong. my stuff too. Yeah. Amazon RDS for SQL Server now supports TempDB on local instance store with R5D and M5D instance types. Making you wonder why they just can't make EBS faster because it's so annoying to have to think about TempDB on local. It's network. <laughs> it's over a network. will never be as fast. It could be faster. <laughs> Is that where all my joins go? Oh, I don't know. Is that? <laughs> yeah, they go into temp and they get deleted. Yeah. <laughs> and the database crashes and it starts. That actually lines up with my experience, yeah. Amazon S3 batch operations add support for delete object tagging. Meaning now I control all my developers, so I just made tag all their S3 objects by deleting all of them. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's bad. That would be bad. Minor inconvenience. I mean, unless it's your logging data, then no one cares. <laughs> all right. Well, that was excellent. That was fun. That was fast. I would say that if Elastic File System actually put out zero... <laughs> then we would give Ryan the absolute win there. But since your statement was misinformation, Justin is going to win tonight with bringing me back to my youth with the Terminator. Nice. Nice. I'll take a Terminator win any day of the week. I just wish they make a good movie again for Terminator. (laughs) I agree. Same. Every time they try to reboot it, I'm just like, why did you bother? All right. Well, that's another fantastic week here in the cloud. I did hear earlier that the Microsoft Build is coming up in March. So I'll get the details in the show notes for next week. And so if you're interested in either Build or Ignite, it's one of the Microsoft conferences that sort of is Azure-ish, but it's coming up very soon in March. I'll send you all the details so you can go sign up for that for free because it is a virtual conference, of course, because we're still in the world of pandemic. But that is the first conference I've seen announced so far this year. And so we will talk about that so you guys know to go check that out if you're in the asia world get signed up for ignite or build if i can remember which one it is (laughs) there you go (laughs) have a great uh, week ryan and peter Good good night and that is the week in cloud we'd like to thank our sponsor foghorn consulting subscribe on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod or join our slack channel go to our website thecloudpod.net for sign up instructions 